Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Waiting about, Kay thought, was the hardest part. She had never got used to it. When the warning went at just after ten, she actually felt better. She stretched in her chair and yawned luxuriously. I'd like a couple of simple fractures tonight, she told Mickey. Nothing too bloody. I've had enough blood and guts for a while. And no one too heavy. I nearly broke my back last week on that policeman in Eccleston Square. No, a couple of slim little girls with broken ankles would just about do it. I'd like a nice old lady, said Mickey, yawning too. She was lying on the floor on a camping mattress, reading a cowboy book. A nice old lady with a bag of sweets. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we're, we're we're doing more blood and guts of the Blitz. More aren't blood we? and guts in the Blitz. Keep so, going. Uh, welcome to the curiously specific uh, book club, the podcast that's curiously specific about dates and locations in well-known books. Every episode, we like to take a book out for a walk into the wild to see if the world of fiction matches up with the real world. I'm Lloyd Shepherd. I'm a product manager and novelist. Hello, I'm Tim Wright, and I'm a digital writer and a producer of immersive. Fictions. Well, nothing more immersive than a bomb exploding all around you. Um, we are. This is our second in our. Uh, is it our second? Yes, yeah, second in our trilogy of uh, World War Two Blitz novels written by women. <laughs> it's, it's niche. Quite, it's quite niche. 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 Uh, we did uh, uh, Lisa Evans's excellent Crooked Heart. Yes. Uh, and now we're doing Sarah Waters' The Night Watch. Yes, indeed. Uh, which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize, I think, back in... Oh, it really was, uh, in, in 2000 and 2004. 2004. Well, what's interesting about it, um, it, it is it structure, structurally it's very interesting because it starts in 1947. The book um, starts in 1947. Yes, that's yeah. right. But then it goes backwards to 44 yeah. and then finishes in 42. 41. 41, sorry. 41, yeah. 41. During and, the Blitz. Yeah. So um, so it's a, it's a story told in reverse, as it were. 
And there's a slight mystery as to what is it that happened in 41 that leads to all these things you read about at the beginning of the book. In 47? Yeah. So it's and clever, isn't it? It's brain- five main characters. Five main characters. So they are um, Duncan, mm-hmm. who is a conscientious objector. Um, no, he's not a conscientious objector. Oh, no, he isn't. He's in no. with the conscientious. He's in he? with the conscientious objectors. But he has a he has a, other reasons for being in prison, yep. Yep. which you'll need to find out when you read the book. Yeah, um, He's in Wormwood Scrubs. He is. Uh, so we'll be going there. Yeah, yeah. Hooray. Um, then he has a sister called Viv, and she's having an affair with a married man. She is Reggie. Reggie. Yeah. Uh, then we've got three other women. Well, Ten- she works, Viv works with. Oh, yeah, she does. Uh, Helen. Helen. At a dating agency. That's, a dating That's agency. in 47, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So there's Helen. And then Helen uh, is in a relationship with a woman called Julia. A writer, a rather posh writer. Quite a posh writer. Willowy, I would say she is. <laughs> a willowy Bloomsbury type. Yes. Yeah. Well, we've got some things to say about that, yeah. haven't we? Um, and they're having troubles in their relationship, I believe. Yeah. And um, there's some, one of the reasons is that Helen used to have a relationship with a woman called Kay. Who, As did Julia. In yeah. fact, they both had relationships with this woman called Kay. So yeah. it's a love triangle. It it's is. a lesbian love triangle. Lesbian love triangle. And Kay works on the Night Watch, which was the uh, the the name for the uh, auxiliary ambulance service. Yes, and we will come on to that. So that that gives you a bit of a picture, listener. Of, of the, so it's it's a clever book because Very structurally clever. you're going back in time and you're dealing with five stories really of life stories all intertwined. Well, I think we both, uh, having spent time with it and with the author realised quite how clever she is as well. well. I think she's even referred to it, Sarah Waters referred to it as that she, it's, it's a brainy book. Yeah. And she's referred to herself as a nerd. Yeah, well, she's certainly cleverer than us, I would say. Oh, no. Well, that, is that... that which writer, which we writer done, we, we, we've us? done where, that, that you think isn't cleverer than us? Yeah, that's a, that's a fair point. <laughs> that is a fair point. In Fleming. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think sober, he might have been cleverer. <laughs> yeah. And it takes it takes place in a, a variety of locations. So we're going to go to Lavender Hill, which is where the book opens in 1947. Yep, uh, where Kay is living. Um, we're also going to go to Wormwood Scrubs. Wormwood Scrubs, which was astonishing, oh, just amazing. Um, we're then going to go over to the to the west end of London to Rathbone Place, which is where Kay and Helen are living in 1944. Yes, uh, and then we're going to go on an amazing walk across oh, I love this London walk. from Rathbone Place to the far eastern side of the city of London, St. Clement's in the East, which is a walk that Helen and uh, Julia take yes. during a, an air raid yes. in 1941. Uh, date? 1944. the baby blitz. Date to be discussed. Date to be discussed. Um, yes, we got a bit tangled up in the dates on that well, one. Well, you know, as we, we have said, that this, you know, or, I think what we need to say is that Sarah Waters does a lot of research and that we were hoping to catch her out yeah. at some point Didn't about happen. a date that was wrong or a location that's in the wrong place. Yeah. Now, listener, I'm going to tell you right now, we're 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 fighting a war against an antagonist who's very well prepared. train ran by, two streets away, heading into Clapham Junction. She felt the thrill and shudder of it in the sill beneath her arms. The bulb in a lamp behind her shoulder sprang into life, flickered for a second like an irritated eye, and then went out. The clinker in the fireplace, a brutal little fireplace, this had been a room for a servant once, 
gently collapsed. Kay took a final draw on her cigarette, then pinched out the flame of it between her forefinger and thumb. She had been standing at her window for more than an hour. It was a Tuesday. She'd seen a snub-nosed man with a wasted arm arrive and had been waiting in a vague kind of way for the Stanley Spencer couple. But now she decided to give up on them. She decided to go out. The day was fine, after all. A day in the middle of a warm September, the third September after the war. We are outside Battersea Arts Centre. Very fine. A lovely place, if you've never been. Do go. I've, I've had some lovely times in there. I ended up in a bath in my pants in there. You ended up in a bath in your pants? Yeah. I say no more. Just off Lavender Hill, and uh, we're between Lavender Hill and the train line, effectively. There's about five or six streets running parallel, and the streets running down Lavender Hill towards the train line. We are looking for Mr. Leonard's house, uh, who is a Christian scientist oh, uh, so healer. Yeah. And the house is described as being the only surviving house at the end of a terrace. Very distinctive, isn't it? That's been that's been bombed, and, and it's creaking, and it's like it's going to fall down because it's yeah. the last one there. Yeah. Where would that be? I think we've both been on bombsite.org. Oh yeah, which is a, yeah. uh, a very good site that uh, lists all the bombs that fell in the Blitz. Well, so well, that's 1940-41. Ah, well, that might explain why I've got another list, candidate. Doesn't list any bombs that fell mm. in the, what what was called the Baby Blitz. Yes, in 1944. But there is a number of places around here where a bomb fell on a, ter- a terrace. Yeah. Uh, and that terrace has now been replaced by some other housing. There's the reference to the, the railway line being... I can see the train coming through now. It's quite good, isn't it? Being two streets away. Yeah. We're on a slight hill, and then you're looking down onto, yeah. the, uh, onto the rail line. You've got Trip. my candidate, and you've got your candidate. Well, that was good, wasn't it? You, so you, my you, candidate you, is, you, uh, you immediately launched into, I've got it, I've got two places, I've been to the bomb site, and then I said, oh, what about this other place, Elsley no, Road? Said, making, Where are you getting that information? I gave you a date. You're making me sound quite smug there. I said, no. I've got two places. I you didn't say, I've got it. No, no, you, I'm not <laughs> saying you're smug. I was, I was just pleased well, a bomb to slightly fell, derail you by bom- giving you a, a date and another address that you well, couldn't have found. Yeah, that's what this podcast is all about. <laughs> Us derailing each other. <laughs> to keep the train metaphor um, going. train metaphor, though. Very good. Uh, so there's a bomb fell at the top of Latchmere Road on where it meets Lavender Hill, which is where the police station is. And Neither of us are keen on that, are we? I don't think it's that, because I think it's... Um, it's, it's too, too near the main Lavender road, Hill. isn't it? When they walk from, from the station, yeah. they walk a bit, don't yeah, they, to they the do. house? They do walk a bit. My candidate is Glycina Road. Glycena. G-L-Y-C-E-N-A road. You showed me a picture. About halfway of it. down, mm. uh, on the right-hand side as you're walking down from Lavender Hill, there's a row of... It's, it's lots of uh, Victorian terraced housing. Mm. Apart from one block of four houses that uh, is exactly where the bomb fell yeah. uh, and is now modernish housing. Completely imagine a bomb falling on perhaps four terraced houses and wiping out two of them and the ones on the end being... Left, but 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 rickety. Yeah, um, they're obviously too rickety to be left standing because all the other houses on that street are very well preserved. So my candidate will be Glycina Road. Okay, good. Uh, it's going down the hill. You can see the railway from there. Yeah, it's probably, and I think this is what you're going to say, more than two streets away from the railway. It does say that in the book, doesn't it? <laughs> she, they mentioned it's two yeah. street, but by any measure, it's not really. <laughs> by any measure. Go on then, where's yours <laughs> We're starting well, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. I found a very good little uh, personal website 
by a guy called James Cousins, jamescousins.com. And he wrote an article in 2010 called Bombs in Battersea. But, so he went to the Battersea Library. He went to the local history library in Battersea, where the staff were incredibly helpful. Then he says he finds one on the 16th of April, 1941, a report. Towards the end of the Blitz, on the 16th of April, 1941, 183 LZ Road was hit by an incendiary device. It was a busy night. Uh, seems to have been Arding and Hobbs. The Nazis were after Arding and Hobbs. Arding and Hobbs. Arding and Hobbs. No, Arding they were Hobbs. after the railway. Of course they were. <laughs> no, they were furious about I suppose incendiary, Arding and Hobbs. If I, if and the prospect an, of it becoming Debenhams if it was before an, they destroyed <laughs> it. <laughs> the whole block you know, on Ellsley Road was destroyed apart from 183. And he's gone down there and he's done a job for us. He's taken a photograph. Let's face it. I think, I think the writer here is really thinking about... Uh, um, British movies. She's thought about the Lavender Hill mob, and then she's got it confused with Lady Killers, and she's thought about the house in Lady Killers that's in King's Cross, which is which is by the railway, isn't it? But it's very and it's very remote and on its own. That's but good. I think we well both. Done. This is good though, right? I mean, we, I like we've it. got a couple of candidates. I would lean towards yours. I'll give you that. Um, uh, but the location's good. Oh, yeah. The railway line's there. It all it all fits. Sarah Waters lives in South London, doesn't she? She does. She lives in Kennington. So not that far from Lavender Hill. Not that far from Lavender Hill, not that far from here. So uh, Sarah Waters, I didn't know she was Welsh. She's not. She's born in Pembrokeshire. Oh, just because you're born there for Christ's sake. Well, she went to school at Milford Haven. But she grew up in Middlesbrough, but she left by the time she was about six. She went to school at Milford Haven Grammar. Did she? Yeah, you got that off Wikipedia, didn't you? The yeah. Middlesbrough thing, I think it's wrong. Oh, okay. She went to, she went to school at Milford Haven Grammar. So has she got an OBE, or is that made up as yeah. well? <laughs> she, I don't know. Has she got an OBE? I don't That's know. That's what it says on Wikipedia. <laughs> and uh, she went to uh, university in Kent, mm. uh, English literature, got an MA from Lancaster, and did a PhD at Queen Mary. So she's always, she had an academic background. Oh, yeah. And get what the title of a PhD was. Uh, Wolfskins and Togas, Lesbian and Gay Historical Fictions, 1870 to the yeah. Present. I mean, I, I quite liked this. Wow. My story is the story of many post-war British families, upward of mobility, a council house and then new affluence, university. My parents were the first in our family to go to grammar schools. My parents were in, my grandparents were in service. Right. So she's, right. you know, she's, she's given sort of some of the... She refers to herself as a horrible swat. She does. <laughs> She does. <laughs> she does that. I thought she was really interesting about writing the Night Watch, Fingersmith, and Tipping the Velvet, yeah. which were huge successes. They're both 19th century, and they're also, I think, it's fair to say, quite gothic in style. This one, I think, it was. I mean, she says it seemed a bit risky, not so much in terms of the change of period itself, but the change of period made for a different feel of book. I almost thought I could import gothic style to the 40s, and I realised pretty quickly that I couldn't and didn't really want to. Mm. And then she says the lushness slipped away. Oh, That's interesting. Okay. okay, but she struggled with it, right? She took her four years to write the Night Watch. It did. Um, yeah, yeah. I felt I was working in the dark, very, very close to what I was writing. Of all the novels, this took the most rewriting. I've got piles of abandoned sheets. That's probably how a lot of writers work. But for me, it was very unnerving. I felt like I was floundering a lot of the time. 
Yeah. It was a struggle for her, I think. Yeah, well, I think that because I think it's partly to do with the fact that her sort of Victorian lesbian romps, as she calls them. Yeah, she does. Came with a, with, with a, they came straight out of her PhD, didn't they? Yeah. And, uh, so that she discovered a, a sort of fertile ground and something that came to her reasonably fluently, I yeah. guess, from her own academic interest and research and her own sexuality, frankly. Yeah. I think because I'd just written this long piece of academic writing, three years solitary. So it was, in a way, it was a perfect training for writing fiction. It gave me a great discipline and, and a confidence about writing that I hadn't had before. So to make the leap from academic work into fiction, where suddenly I didn't have to have a, a, you know, a bibliography or in, you know, footnotes or anything, was very liberating. I remember that as being a very exciting move to make. I could suddenly, you know, I mean, when you're writing about the past as an academic, you're, you're limited to the facts. But of course, as a novelist, in a funny way, not having the facts can be a bit of a gift because it gives you a license to, to, to fill in the gaps, to, to make things up. Mr Mundy's house was a ten minute walk from the station round the back of the dog track. When races were on you could hear the crowds. A funny sound, loud, almost frightening. It seemed to surge after you down the streets like great waves of invisible water. Tonight the track was quiet. The streets had children in them. Three of them balanced on one old bicycle, weaving about, raising dust. We think we found uh, Mr. Mundy's house, don't we? we think or we the street, anyway. Well, we've walked. Uh, we've just walked up from, um, actually, from White City Tube Station, not Woodland Wood Lane Tube Station. Cheated, yeah, but they're on the same road. Yes, it's, well, it's interesting. I thought I thought I'd caught I thought I'd caught her out here on oh. the stations. Yeah, she gets the central line to Wood Lane. Yes, from Lancaster Gate. Yeah, well, Wood Lane's not on the Central Line. It's on the Hammersmith and City Line. Oh, but yes. Yes. it did used to be on the Central Line. The old Wood Lane station closed in 1947, which is when this whole chapter oh, set. Very good. And I thought, ah, oh, I've got you. It, you know, they would have, they would have gone to, they would have gone to White City in 1947. No, White City opened in November. Well, I and think we're dealing with September. a Q-spec pro here. I think we're dealing with a serious professional. <laughs> So we're in Wormwood Scrub. We're on the edge of Wormwood Scrubs. Wormwood Scrubs. It's an amazing scrub. area of open, well, scrubland, as it says. Yeah. Um, and we're right by the prison. In West London, and we're right behind Wormwood Scrubs Prison. Which is huge. It's absolutely vast. Mr Mundy works at the Mr. prison. Mr Mundy's a guard at the prison. And Duncan and Fraser are inmates at the prison in D-Wing. And uh, the reason we've come here is um, we wanted to see whether you could walk from Wood Lane or White City Tube Station, next to each other, doesn't really make much difference, up towards the dog track, which yes. was the old White City Olympic Stadium yes. and is now White City Place. We've both worked there, Tim, haven't we? We have done Dif- our time. Different stints at the A BBC. Bit like, like Wormwood Scrubs, we've done our time. And we walked straight up Wood Lane and we found a little network of three or four streets on the other side of the Westway, the A40. Because the Westway wouldn't have been there. Westway wouldn't have been there. Well, yeah. Straight up Wood Lane, about 10 minutes walk, yeah, perfect. you find yourself at a, a nest of streets. I actually, the one I took a picture of, because it had a, a lovely old sign, Nascot Street, I like leading that. to Ainsh- Ainham Road. I think you lived on Nascot Street. I like so that. I like Nascot Street as where Mr Mundy it's perfect lives too, with because, Duncan. Yeah, right? that's right. In so a he slightly lived strange relationship that's never made perfectly clear what's going on but it's well, pretty obvious well I think we pretty obvious that basically Mr Munder puts his hand on his knee when he's in prison he does. doesn't he and he looks does. after him and gives him snout and then says I could be an uncle to you which is always a red alert when someone says that to you did you know well, that well no one's ever said that to me he wasn't my uncle so. 
I know you've had occasion had, to worry had some experience. to worry about this. And then if you walk <laughs> if you walk from uh, Nascot Road along Duquesne Road, yeah, you find yourself at Wormwood Scrubs Prison. I think it, I tell you what I do think is a massive mistake, which I saw on the sign for Wormwood Scrubs, the heathland here, is that they've designated an area as a designated for model airplanes. <laughs> well, it's the prison. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's that seems like a massive mistake. That feels yes <laughs> problematic, shall we say? How did they get their drugs in here? Yeah. I just don't understand it. <laughs> that is quite weird. What a weird decision. No, can't see any model aeroplanes while we're sat here. No, I haven't seen a drone go over yet. No, no, no. Now look, conscientious objectors. Yes, conchies. Conchies. So, um, Fraser is a conscientious objector, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Fraser's the man that uh, Duncan they is sharing They were chucking them in Wormwood Scrubs from since World War One. In World War One, they'd put conscientious objectors in there. Right. And you, you get roughly, I think you, you get roughly a year. I'll tell you who a famous conscientious objector who would have been in there at the same time as Duncan. Okay. Uh, Sir Michael Tippett, the composer. Oh. A Child of Our Time, his great orchestral work, was written around this period. I didn't know Michael Tippett was a conscient. Yes, he was. He was a communist, although he didn't identify with any political party. I think he joined the. the he, I think he left the British Communist Party because they weren't communist enough. Well, yeah. Um, he was backsliders. Uh, he was a homosexual, but he was not out. Or right. um, I think he was bisexual actually. A pacifist after 1940, he was imprisoned in 1943 for refusing to carry out war-related duties required by his military exemption. So he's sitting in the cell next door, isn't he? Writing, writing a ch- child of our time, whatever it is. That is interesting. Writing his oratorio. So he's sat in there when... Uh, Michael Tippett. Very interesting. Yeah. Oh, isn't there a scene, though, where someone sings? Do you think that's Tippett? Oh, that could be Michael Tippett singing. Isn't there a scene where somebody sings <laughs> did, a rather he, lovely he, song and they all go quiet? He does after the war. He spends a lot of time in Oxted. Uh, I think around this time he he's, he's runs a choir down in Oxted. Ah, see, I wonder, if, I wonder again if that's a reference. Do you think she knew? She knew. Well, she's obviously she's guilty of research, her. hasn't she? She knows she's vastly more than we do exactly. about it. Exactly. Lots of famous inmates here, uh, felons. George Blake, of course, escaped. He did. George Blake, who we talked about in the Ipswich spy. Spire. Yeah, yeah. But he managed to get over that wall, amazingly. Well, presumably he was helped by a model aeroplane. John Stonehouse was in there. Oh. We've mentioned him before. We do, we have mentioned him before. So there's quite a lot of Q-spec characters. It's a good curiosity-specific well, um, <laughs> side then, isn't it? <laughs> Nexus. We Nexus could have a, we could have a party. <laughs> have a woman's cruise party. It's quite windy here. Yeah. Um, well, this is good then, isn't it? So we quite like uh, the walk from Wood Lane. We think she has been very specific about the location. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and he definitely, Mr. Mundy, walked to work from his house. Yeah. Very straightforward. And Wormwood Scrubs kind of works. And there yeah, were works conscientious I like objectors Wormwood in Scrubs, there. But I'm very glad we came here and saw it because it is extraordinary. It's an amazing place. It is quite weird the way it's on the edge of the park as well. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's like a kind of 19th century high-tech business park. Yeah. I'll tell you what, listen, it's, we'll get some photos of it, but it's exactly what you think a Victorian prison should look like, but like on a big scale. It is enormous. And and it's, in terms of a sort of thing to go and see in London... Go and see it. It's quite good, isn't it? Yeah, it's not on the tourist trail, but it definitely should be. Yeah. Get the get the tube to East Acton, walk down to Wormwood Scrubs... Have a clock at Wormwood Scrubs. wander around. Bring they a drone. Like, they don't like you taking photographs outside, but don't worry about that. Bring a drone. Bring a drone, yeah. You're listening to the Curiously Specific Book Club podcast. 
If you want to receive these episodes without delay and with no ads, you need to f- support us on Patreon. Just head over to patreon.com and search for Curiously Specific Book Club. Uh, hand over a very small, tiny, almost uh, undetectable amount of money. Yeah, you're, you're less than a, you can't buy a pint of beer for that money. You can't buy half a pint of beer in London for, that, for, mm. them, for this much. Uh, and you'll get uh, the episodes uh, immediately and with ads, but you also get a bunch of other stuff. Yes, you'll get our show notes. So all the links and references that we we mentioned, you'll you'll get that in document form. So you can just click through and watch stuff. Um, you'll also get photos. You'll get videos, and uh, you'll get maps. Some of them good, <laughs> well done by Tim. Some of them less good, <laughs> done by me. Um, but uh, they're but but they're all they're all informative. Yes, and we add extra posts and stuff and yeah. thoughts that occur videos. to us. Yeah, uh, and then if you pay us a little bit more money, you can join us on a Discord server where we actually discuss our field trips and yeah, books and other that are books coming we up. might do. We've had some great conversations about uh, other books that we yeah, might do. Yeah, so thanks to everyone who's joining us on yeah, that. That's it's good, really good, it's fun. good stuff. So uh, head over to patreon.com, search for Curiously Specific, uh, and uh, enjoy the goodies that, that lie therein. That's easy for you to say. Now, now back, back to the, the podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. She looked away. At the words, your visits, she'd had a very clear and unpleasant memory of herself, her father and Duncan at one of the tables in the visiting room at Wormwood Scrubs. She remembered the press of other visitors, the look of the men, the awful babble, the sour, airless feel of the room. She remembered Fraser himself from those days, for she'd seen him more than once. She recalled his brash public schoolboy's laugh. She remembered one of the other visitors saying, "'Isn't it a shame?' and a man actually calling out to him, Can't you take it, Conchie? Oh. 
So Fraser is a is a conscientious objector. He is a conscientious objector. Which is why he's in Wormwood Scrubs. First World War, there were 16,000 men registered as conscientious objectors in the That's First World War. That's not very many. Uh, but 6,000 were refused. Uh, in the Second World War, there were 60,000 registered conscientious objectors. The way you got to be registered, you went up in front of a conscientious objection tribunal, which is run through the local authorities, chaired by a judge. So about 5,500 uh, objectors were imprisoned in the Second World War okay. for, for not meeting the criteria. Okay. Um, and a further 1,000 were court-martialed by the armed forces and sent to military detentions. Um, but I noticed that most of them only got a sentence of about one year. Right. If they then agreed to go off and do other sort of non-combat, played non-combat Well, roles. there were two categories of conscientious objectors. There were people who didn't want to fight. Yeah. Uh, uh, but there were also people who didn't want anything to do with the war. Yes. They wouldn't do any work at all. So yeah. what, would, what would happen to them? Would they, they were imprisoned. What I noticed was that quite a number of them were Quakers. A great many were Quakers. And, and was quite actually, a few were um, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Lots of Jehovah's Witnesses. It was actually because of the religious opt-outs that they had to come up with some kind of legislation for in the First World War because there, right. so you know, there were so many people getting it for that. Obviously, it's worth saying, this is from Philip Ziegler mm. uh, from the People's War. There is, uh, obviously, they were a lot of people were violently opposed to conscientious objectors oh, yeah. uh, they call them coward shirkers and traitors so Sir Edward Phipps a London magistrate voiced their views at a tribunal considering requests for exemption from national service when he described the applicants as these miserable creatures and interrupted their evidence with a cry of what tosh gosh uh, the strongly labour council of Bermondsey evidently shared his opinion they dismissed all employees who were registered conscious oh, objectors so this is interesting so the courts could be quite uh, interesting about this one quite tolerant so they six officials of the peace pledge union were prosecuted during the second world war for exhorting the public not to fight oh, okay but the case was dismissed by the judge this is what they said this is a free country we are fighting to keep it a free country and these gentlemen fortunately for them, in my judgment, are living in a country where they can express their pacifism or their non-pacifism with perfect freedom. Well, hey. So basically they're saying, if, you, if you're going to start locking people up because they're not going to fight. Yeah, what are we fighting for? What are we fighting for? Yes. So, yeah, so... Uh, Fra um, Fra I'm not sure it's a great argument for most of the people who are fighting to say we're fighting for all these people who aren't <laughs> going to fight with us. <laughs> it's very it's, a, it's slightly mixed messages. Now, look, in terms of conscientious one thing I did find that I found very interesting was um, how um, uh, in the second half of the war, did you know that you could volunteer as a... Um, if you were a conscientious objector, you could volunteer to take part in a wide range of scientific studies and become a guinea pig mm. for the effects of medicines and pesticides. No. And also the, to test the limits of what the human body could endure in regard to temperature, dehydration and diet. Basically, as the Allies pushed further west in Europe, I'm getting this from the, it is an American one, but it's the National World War II Museum. As the Allies pushed further Western Europe, armies began to come across more and more starved civilians. Doctors knew that special care would be needed to restore their lives, so a call was put out to conscious uh, conscious conscientious conscientious objectors to volunteer for a starvation study. Christ. Wow. Well, another smaller group, this is the ones I liked, a smaller group of conscientious objectors undertook the vital and dangerous task of becoming smoke jumpers. 
smoke jumpers. <laughs> <Yes>. Explain. <laughs> They uh, undertook the vital and dangerous task of forest firefighting in remote areas. So they would smoke jump. Because obviously there was quite a lot of forest fires going on. But where were they jumping? Out of planes. Oh, my God. Yeah, they were through the smoke. Down. Through they the were smoke. parachuting down into forest fires. Yes. Yes. Blimey. <laughs> smoke jumping teams. So your options were either to starve yourself or jump into a forest fire. <laughs> Believing as I do that there is something of God in every man, I feel that I cannot take any part in the preparation of war. For I feel impelled to make my protest against conscription in all its forms as being a violation of true liberty. I ask the tribunal to leave me free to serve the community in accordance with the light of truth as I see it. I'm going back to work, answered Helen, a little self-consciously. For something about Julia, Julia's manner, Julia's clear upper-class voice, always made her shy. I've just had lunch. I work just over there in the town hall. The town hall? Julia peered along the street. We've probably passed one another before then and not noticed. My father and I have been working our way through all the streets around here. We've set up a sort of headquarters in a house on Branston Square. We've been there for a week. He's just gone off to see a warden, and I'm making it an excuse for a little sit-down. Julia's father, Helen knew, was an architect. He was making a survey of bomb-damaged buildings, and Julia was helping. But Helen had always imagined them working miles away, in the East End or somewhere like that. She said, Branston Square? How funny. I walk through there all the time. Do you? asked Julia. So we are sat in, actually, Montague Square. Yeah. Which is the next square along from Branston Square. Mm-hmm. We are south of the Marlebone Road, east of the Edgware Road. You've done well here. And I just feel. south of Marlebone Town Hall, which is on the Marlebone Road. Yeah. Helen works at the Marlebone Town Hall in the Damage Assistant Department. So uh, a couple of reasons why this is interesting. It's, it's very close to uh, Marlebone Town Hall. Branston Square is uh, a, a fairly grand early 19th century square, uh, as is Montague Place Square, which is right next to it. Long, narrow uh, squares surrounded by five, six-storey buildings with yeah. stucco fronts. A lot of big London plane trees for sucking up the pollution. So uh, Julia and uh, Helen had their first sort of encounter here in, that, in Branston Square. Uh, having bumped into each other in the street, and they start making appointments to kind of... Well, they go and have... Um, what do they have? Tea, Sam- they they have tea. sandwiches. Well, she uh, has rabbit, sandwiches. Have rabbit sandwiches. Oh, Is that right, a euphemism? Yeah. Would in, you like in to the house. have a rabbit sandwich? And then... So that's all in 1944. In 1947, um, Julia and Helen, by that stage, are living together mm-hmm. in a flat that is described in being in one of the streets east of the Edgware Road. That's right, yeah. The street isn't named, but the house is described. I wrote it down here, so let me just find it. Their house was part of an early 19th century terrace facing a garden. Okay. The terrace was white, that London white, more properly a streaked and greyish yellow. The grooves and sockets of its stucco facade had been darkened by fogs, by soot, and more recently by brick dust. The houses all had great front doors and porches and must once, in fact, have been grand residences. 
So I'm looking opposite, and there's one there that's that's white. It's got a stucco front. Yeah. It's got a grand front door. It's got grooves in the stucco. It's yeah. not a smooth front. Okay. The houses in Montague Square match that description better than the they houses do in Branson well. Square. Yeah. And we are lo- overlooking a garden. Yeah. So it's quite good. It is quite good. So I'm saying this is a good candidate. So rather cutely, what Sarah Waters doesn't do is make the connection because of the point where you're reading this description you don't know anything about 1944 that's right because you uh, and you she doesn't actually draw any connections in the book between the different years She's, she just no it's for you to, and that to, to re- discover that as you go now. back in time yeah. it's, it's really quite good where and the last works. the last reason why this is good I think the other thing they do in 1947 is they they come out of their flat and they walk to Regent's Park you're going to have a picnic to have a picnic and the way they walk to Regent's Park is they cut through to Baker Street which is like literally two blocks behind that us would work, wouldn't it? to the east of here and they cut up Baker Street and they can hear the band mm. in the bandstand as they turn into Baker Street so it all hangs together quite well I think I think you've done that rather well I, I'm, I'm buying this Somerset Maugham I noticed had a, had a house just around the square corner. which is on the north side of Branson Square yeah I thought that might have been a fun little joke if they were living in Somerset Maugham's uh, Didn't you have a Lawrence? You had a Lawrence Stern reference, did you? Or we haven't? Oh, that's he lived in the wig makers. Oh, that's Bond well, because we, we haven't been to the wig makers. So, so Helen and uh, Viv in they work in the dating. I've got their matching agency, matchmaking agency uh, by Bond Street. It's on Bond Street. So Station. in fact, from here, for it's her to go to the dating to agency, not far, not far at all. Re- yeah, that's pretty good, isn't so it? So she stayed in the area. And I'll tell you what's interesting about that to me as well. It's almost, the dating agency is almost equidistant from Rathbone Place, where she lived. Yes. Okay, and here, when she oh, lives. good point. Right? Good point. Midway. Then we'll have time for things like wedding rings and a free heart will sing when the lights go on again. So this is a book about the 1940s, but it's actually published in 2006. 2006. And as we've said, Sarah Waters took four years to write this book. Mm. So it's, she started thinking about it in 2001 too, presumably. Mm. Uh, but 2006, what's, what kind of world is this book uh, coming into? Yeah. I quite liked this. This is a, a, per, a, a personal um, obsession. So Michael Bajant and Richard Lee, co-authors of... The Holy Blood and oh, the Holy Grail. I knew you were going to be into which this. I, uh, which I, I loved in the 70s when I was at school. Yeah. It's a conspiracy theory about. And basically, should we say it inspired the Da Vinci Code? Anyway, this was the year they sued Random House over the Da Vinci Code, saying mm. it had been um, uh, basically, they claimed it had been ripped off from, from them, and the, the, the judge disagreed. But the judge, rather brilliantly, Mr. Justice Peter Smith, um, spelt out a secret message in code within his judgment of course he did um, and obviously uh, uh, a big a big uh, a big year for the welsh oh really the senneth building opened in uh, in cardiff pass me by well what is the senneth building well, it's the it's the it's the parliament building and why do they call it the parliament building because it's because <laughs> oh, not even going there the thing i re- the other thing i remember from this year it was kind of it was that period of the internet atheism was very big oh, was it people were arguing about atheism online before people started arguing about culture wars and all that kind of stuff people used to argue about atheism made me feel very nostalgic this because two books were published in 2006 the god delusion oh yes uh, but also the gospel of the flying spaghetti 
Monster was published in 2006. I don't know that book. And that was that. Well, the flying fly spaghetti monster was the kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink. We're online. We're very clever. Invented deity, showing so sort of supposedly to show how ridiculous religion was. Okay. And it was kind of the thing that everyone gathered around. It was atheism was big. That's all you need to know in 2006. Well, the other thing that was really big that started then um, was Twitter. Yes. In 2006. 2006. Did you start your account in 2006? I did, yeah. That's my first tweet. Terrible, isn't it? It's awful. And Google bought YouTube and made it big. They did. In the same year. Yeah. And the Nintendo Wii was launched. Was it? 2006? Yes. yes. So it's a big year for um, technology. And we would say, obviously, uh, 2006 was also officially, formally, the end of Pink Floyd. Oh, man, I knew that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sid yeah, Barrett died in 2006. Yeah, because uh, regular, we always regular listeners will know that I, I tend to chart the world by things that happened in the yeah. Pink Floyd universe, and that's the big one, isn't it? Yeah, that is the big one. I'd, I, I, I feel I want to say to you that I think he passed through the doors of perception. He didn't <laughs> die. Oh, but the, the, other, the end of an era, Saturday morning kids television finished in 2006. Well, Top of the Pops did as well. And Top of the Pops. And um, Smash Hits. Yeah. Smash hits. All our, char- all our childhood being dismantled in 2000. Sid Barrett, smash hits, top of the pops. Well, that's why I said to you about Twitter and the social media. Did you know also it's the first year when a single uh, got to number one through downloads only? Was it Crazy? Crazy by Niles Martin. Yeah. I you can believe this. There were six million downloads in 2004. By 2006, there were 50 million. Yeah. So it's, the, it's basically the year the internet comes... Comes and to it's before you. Spotify, right? I mean, this is this yeah, is, yeah. This is MySpace, a, Apple Music, and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's quite something, isn't yeah, it? That is quite something. So I think 2000, 2006, I would say for me, as someone who's sort of worked in this world since the nineties, yeah, um, two thousand six is w- when I talk to young people about the internet. Yeah, they basically go back to around two thousand six, absolutely, and they forget that anything happened absolutely uh, ten years prior prior to that. Or 20 yeah. So years when I said people were arguing about atheism. They were arguing in the comments on blogs. That's why they were arguing. <laughs> and when they argue and about Twitter music. comes along and goes, hello, Twitter's like, hold my beer. <laughs> That's right. It just comes over. So I think you could describe it as a liminal year, Tim. No. No, no, no. <laughs> Do you know what it is? It's, oh. it's peak new labour. Well. It's just at the point where they, they've it's it's run out. And, year, it's, and it? by, the, by the, at the beginning of the year, he's, he's still 20 points ahead in the polls. Yeah. By the end of the year, they're behind. Yeah. Because he's announced he's going to leave, yeah. and, and he started the internecine stuff with Brown, and Brown started with him, yeah. and it's all and 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 all the stuff, the repercussions of the Iraq War are filtering out. Yes, and so so between the first of January two thousand six, and the thirty first December two thousand, I'd say that all this stuff with all these great hip, they're the last bits of hip British Blair it's Britishness. Liminal. It's liminal. And then, and then it's gone. A new Britain is emerging. No, liminals, no it's, just the, it's just the decline. Well, it's I've got the decline. A new world is emerging, and it's a bit shit. I think what is important now is that we understand that it's the interests of the country that come first, and we move on. Now, as for my um, uh, timing and date of departure, I would have preferred to do this in my own way, but as has been pretty obvious... Um, from what many of my cabinet colleagues have said um, earlier in the week. The next party conference in a couple of weeks will be my last party conference as party leader. Where am I? Where the hell am I? Where's Pim's Yard? 
Pim's yard, he answered, shaking her off and already moving away. You're in it. She looked down and saw cobbles beneath her boots. Gazing around again, she began to make out little familiar details and she realised at last that the warehouse, Palmer's, must be right here, ahead of her, not quite at the centre of the blaze, and that, and that the reason she could not make out the shape of her own building was because a side and a part of the roof of Palmer's had fallen and flattened it. Ho-ho! So this is Kay rushing back from uh, critical scene from uh, Pimlico because uh, she's been told that um, a bomb has come down uh, in Rathbone Place they were aiming for the BBC weren't they and, then the, <laughs> and the bomb has come down I uh, think they were aiming for heels in the same way that Hitler wanted to undermine morale uh, they were aiming for heels did you say yeah, yeah. well because he'd, he'd already targeted Arding and Hobbs <laughs> and then it, next on the list of of, of British London London middle class concerns yeah. would be they've got heels. Where am I going to get they do my sofas they're from? They're, they're after broadcasting heels. Heels isn't mentioned, but um, <laughs> yes, okay, um, nice. So we're sitting in uh, Stevens Muse. Yes, uh, Stevens Muse, just off, off Stevens Street. Stephen Muse, Stephen Street. Um, around the back of the BFI. Around the back of the BFI. Is it still the, the British BFI? Film Institute? It is. It's actually been ritzed up. They've got a cinema. I've had done some events in there mm-hmm. with my students. Behind the Bricklayer's Arms pub, which is at the end of the Muse. Yeah. Um, Just off Rathbone Place, between Rathbone Place and Totten Court Road. Yeah. There's two Muse. There's two Muse next to each other. There's Percy Muse and Stephen Muse. Um, and we, uh, the Muse isn't mentioned. The, the, she mentions a place called Pim's Yard. Yes. Uh, which There's no such read. thing as Pim's Yard, as far as I can tell. We can't find a Pim's Yard. If you look at the old Ordnance Survey maps from the 40s and 50s, and you look at both Steve, well, particularly Stephen Terrace, where we are, uh, Stephen Muse, where we are now, there are all sorts of vacancies off it, any one of which could have been Pim's Yard. And uh, this is where Kay and Helen are living in 1944. Yes, north of Oxford Street in a sort of Muse or Yard off Rathbone Place. Um, she talks about walking towards it and then she says she went on still quickly to Rathbone Place only at the mouth of the mews did she begin to step more lightly for she had a secret persistent dread of coming back and finding that the place had been hit was in flames or ruins legitimate concern I'd say Um, but all was quiet her flat was at the blank far end of the yard above a garage beside a warehouse she had to go up a flight of wooden steps to get to its door. So we're looking at the mm. back of the BFI, which is a eighties building, eighties, seventies. Well, th- this was all part of the Gort Estate, the Gort family estate. Right. And I found a really terrific website, FitzRoviaNews.com, uh, Fitz has uh, two or three really great articles about this area, um, with fantastic photos, and uh, it's basically in the seventies. Um, it was all crumped, the whole of this area. There used to be another sort of muse-type place called Tudor Place. Right. uh, That would be more or less where the BFI building is now. And uh, and that had a little sort of uh, uh, muse-type entrance to it as well and was a mixture of residential and commercial buildings. If you go on that site, 
they somebody's got a whole load of pictures of the place just as it was being demolished. Mm. So you get a sense of uh, what it was a right little rabbit warren around here of, of, of little streets I like this. I think it really was. Um, and you certainly, this would have been a dead end, Stephen Muse. It's not now, you can go out onto Stephen Street now, but it would have been a dead end. I think this is one of those situations where she's read a book. That we haven't got. That we haven't got access to. We've been out we have, such, we have such faith in her research by this stage that we're, like, we're assuming we're, you know, <laughs> we're just, it's just there to be found and we well, haven't found it. We're assuming that we're just some chances who make things up. <laughs> is that what you're saying? We spend a couple of days researching this podcast <laughs> rather than four years. Um, but, I uh, get the feeling. It feels right though, doesn't it, here? There's cobbles, there's cobbled muse. Yes, there's a cobbled muse. And um, yeah, I think we're spot on. I think she's spot on. There are some little stairs going up there. Um, yeah, but it's it just at the end. But it's not it's at the end. It's, it's not the, the blank end. end. I have to say that Percy Muse has more of a sort of blank end now, if you want the sense of a blank end. Yeah. But I don't think it's the right place. In no, terms I of think that. that would have been a blank end with, with yeah, yards off to the been. side. Well, obviously, that was going to be... Um, um, that was um, the home of the UFO underground... Played their first ever live gig. So, for me, considering the this is the right place. Continuing the Pink Floyd universe. Yeah, yeah, it all joins up. You see, it all joins up. So, I don't think Sarah Waters doesn't strike me as a Pink Floyd fan. We don't know yet. She hasn't done her her late nineteen sixties novel yet. A very well-researched yeah. late yeah, 1960s good, novel about uh, lesbians in, in uh, Woodstock or yeah. something. So you leave us sitting among the rubble of a muse in London W1. I've got a fantastic photograph I found of the rubble of that place yeah. before they built the BFI. And I bet you're only going to show it to our Patreon subscribers. you damn right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you can uh, listen to part two of this uh, podcast right now if you head over to patreon.com and search for Curiosity Specific and hand over an embarrassingly small amount of money. Uh, you will get the, uh, the episodes there. It's ready to listen to right now. It's just sitting there on the server. With no ads. Uh, and uh, you will get it with any, we get it without any ads. Otherwise, we'll see you in a week's time. You have to wait a week before you find out where the hell we're going. Where the hell we're we going. We've kind of told you, though, haven't we? We've already told you. It's an amazing Well, you won't walk. know the precise route. Amazing walk for the City of London, but yeah. uh, the precise route, TBC. Uh, so we'll see you in a week's time. Uh, and uh, to join us uh, in uh, the City of London where the bombs are still falling from the sky. Yes. I hope one hasn't got your number on it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.